Hello, I'm Emma Watkins and you are listening to Forgotten Convicts. This week we're going to look at social mobility. So many of you will be aware that threaded through discussions of convicts who've been transported is this narrative that they fared better in the colonies than if they had remained at home in the UK. And this belief is certainly reflected in some of the letters that were sent home by convicts at the time, expressing a belief in them having a second chance then. And in these letters, they expressed how if they were industrious, if they remained sober, they would prosper in the colonies. And this is um, being supported by historians like Portia Robinson and John Hurst, who argued that the colonies offered a greater opportunity for kind of self-advancement and freedom than back home. And similarly, um, Robinson suggested that there was upward mobility for convict women through employment and through marriage. And so for those convicts who didn't succeed then, it was because they were incorrigibles who chose not to take advantage of the available opportunities. And of course, this argument, as Daniels has pointed out, positions Britain as creating criminals through social circumstances, whereas in the penal colonies it was character which was causing the failure, not social circumstances. And indeed, as Garton has stated previously, this working man's paradise has been one of the dominant and most persistent national images of Australia. Even the depressions of the 1890s and 1930s are often presented as aberrations in an otherwise prosperous Australian history. And Australian historiography, really up until the late 1980s, followed this narrative that 19th century workers enjoyed advantages in wages, in hours that they worked, in their housing, in their food, which were not shared by those over in America and Britain. And historian O'Brien did redress this kind of historical imbalance in the late 1980s by arguing that there were different experiences according to age and according to gender and that they were just as important in determining self-sufficiency as class was. And Garten added to this that those who were too ill or too old or simply couldn't find any work were being ignored in this workers paradise narrative. Nevertheless, there has been this enduring belief that social mobility was is a social norm, where class structures and a lack of social capital are less rigid than in other comparable nations. And this remains um, the case in some areas. However, there has been an increasing global interest amongst academics and the public on this issue of social mobility. Indeed, stalled social mobility has been declared a global issue. And of course, these discussions around stalled mobility imply that there was a period when individuals were not stalled. And there was a study then by Clark and colleagues in 2017, which looked at Australian social mobility. And as always, just to note that um, all the references and the articles, if anybody is interested, are attached to the blog, um, attached to this podcast.
So Clark and colleagues then track the status of Australian surnames between 1870 and 2017. And they did this in order to look at long-run social mobility. And this is instead of measuring social mobility between parent and child, which generally shows more improvement. And what they found was that the status persistence was actually strong throughout Australia. And long-run social mobility rates were low. And they argue that despite Australia being an immigrant society and without some of the entrenched social institutions and rigidities of the likes of England, that social mobility rates were still just as low. And this implies then a very static society. And while the ruling class and the underclass aren't permanent, they are extremely long-lasting is um, the point that's being made. And while their focus began in 1870, they do marginally consider how convicts and emancipists fit into this. So in order to measure the lower class members of society and their rates of upward mobility, what Clark and colleagues did is they included all those who were transported from the UK to Van Diemen's Land, obviously now known as Tasmania, during its time as a penal colony, so between 1804 and 1853. And they also included all those sentenced under the convict system. In total, they had 76,000, so a, a big sample. And they unexpectedly found more upwards movement when compared with the general population. So comparing the convict population to the general population. And in an attempt to try and understand this, they point to studies which have compared or explored human capital of transported convicts. So those studies which have looked at the human capital of convicts compared with the general population. So, for example, they argue that Nicholas and Shergold and Miser point to a positive selection in this regard. However, Piper, in his 2003 thesis, has already challenged the argument of Nicholas and Shergold in particular, stating that overall there is little evidence that convict workers were conscripted on a systematic basis. And in addition to this rebuttal, Meinzer's position is far more nuanced. So the argument specifically is around Western Australia convicts. That's what's looked at in the study and points to a traditional belief. So this kind of public contemporary consensus that convicts said they were positively selected from British prisoners. However, it's found in the study that the data doesn't actually support this. So through comparing heights of Western Australian convicts and prisoners back home, it was found that the physically fit were not deliberately chosen for transportation and that trades and occupations didn't generally align with colonial needs, with the slight exception of possibly construction workers. And while it could be demonstrated that Western Australian convicts were slightly more literate than those back home. It's argued that this was coincident on their generally younger age and urban background. And this is also the similar case for New South Wales convicts. So if their human capital was greater than those back home, it was coincident on the demographics of those who commit crime, meaning those transported may have had more human capital, but they were not expressly chosen for transportation because of it then. And another argument that um, Clark and colleagues make is that there was little convict stigma. And they do this through using examples of what are, I would perhaps argue, exceptional cases of social mobility. 
So the commonality of convictism then in the penal colony logically suggests that this kind of shared status would lead to less stigmatization. And indeed, um, from my research into juvenile convicts, female convicts, for example, were able to marry under full servitude, which suggests that if there was any stigma, it wasn't so great that it deterred husbands then. However, it cannot also be ignored that there were very few females in the colony. And ultimately, the levels of stigmatization are very difficult to measure without written records um, from convicts themselves. In certain circumstances, it may have been, and it's likely to be the case, that it wasn't a hindrance to them fitting in society then, so having a convict past. And this is the case for the examples put forward by um, Clark and colleagues. Um, so they point to relatively famous examples. So the designer, Francis Greenaway, the businessman, and um, Solomon Wiseman, um, Lawrence Holleran, who founded an elite school in Sydney, and various others as well. Um, for example, a Tasmanian newspaper founder John Davis. And while there are exceptions, I must add that, or at least it must be noted that other factors did aid convict success stories. So such factors include their education and skills before transportation. For example, Francis Greenaway, who went on to work for the governor as Australia's first government architect, trained as an architect before transportation. So while stigma didn't prevent um, Francis Greenaway and others like him from being successful in the colony, it's their skills often before transportation that also feed into their success. Nevertheless, the argument put forward by Clark and colleagues is that convict analysis has provided insights, not just into selectivity, which has already been discussed, but also the upward mobility of this particular group. And I mean, I for one think that this is very interesting and I certainly want to look into this further. Yet, even if we accept that convicts were the exception to this Australian social immobility, it is known that former convicts dominated the charitable system, as our Piper's work shows. So because of this, this concentration on the upwardly mobile emancipist ignores then what might be termed the refuse of the convict system, those left behind. And in doing so, sometimes, not always, but sometimes a false picture of former convicts having a fresh start in the colonies is created. And at times, the harms of the Australian penal system are downplayed as a result of this. Additionally, it cannot be ignored that social mobility is morally, geographically and culturally fluid. It depends on political, economic and intellectual context. And Breen, for example, argues that Launceston's economic and class structures were so closely related that occupational groupings could be used to indicate class divisions. However, it has alternatively been argued that individual experience of social mobility, or of course a lack thereof, can vary and is actually really simply kind of this up or down direction. It's essentially argued to be jagged, so someone doesn't just improve upwards or um, fall downwards, it, it can change over the life course. An additional point about social mobility that needs to be made is that an important aspect of convicts was their lack of social and family networks in the colonies that they were forced to um, migrate to. And if families are in any way central to social mobility through intergenerational transfer 
of economic assets through social capital, um, which is argued to be the case in social mobility studies, or even just um, stability for those convicts. This would certainly have hindered convicts who were transported away from families and friends. They were removed from those networks. And it's possible to uncover then these discernible jags in the lives of pauper emancipists and within their mobility then, instead of focusing on beginning to end measures, so where they started, where they were when they died. We can look at the jagged process through their life courses. A case which represents a jagged life course is that of John Porter. John was born in approximately 1823 and he was single uh, when he was transported at the age of 21, so he hadn't yet married. And this was in 1843 approximately. And he was transported from Middlesex. So John, his parents, and he had two sisters as well, were all living in London. John was convicted at the Old Bailey, the Central Criminal Court in London, for stealing a gown and a workbox. But this wasn't John's first conviction. He had previously been imprisoned for three months for stealing boots and four months for stealing a stove. So on the voyage over to Australia, John was described by the ship surgeon superintendent who was in charge of the convicts on the voyage over as orderly and as having no previous offences and as having no employment. Indeed, as well as having, of course, previous offences described elsewhere in his records, it's also noted in his conduct record that he had employment at some point as a type founder. So it may have been that while he was trained as such, he was out of work when he was convicted. So this is, this is unclear. And these contradictions in the records are not unusual. His description list within his convict records describing as being around five foot five and as being freckled. He had a tattoo of a crucifix on his left arm and a long scar on his hand and also on his right arm he had another tattoo j heart l so presumably and um, while he wasn't married he um did have some form of relationship with someone with the name beginning l while he was under sentence in the um colonies in, in van diemen's land he had a number of offenses recorded against him and these were all recorded in his conduct records his first recorded offence was a status one. So while he was at Seven Mile Creek, he absented himself from the station without permission. This was approximately five months after arrival, and his punishment for this was 10 days solitary confinement. While he was still at Seven Mile Creek, but on probation, he misconducted himself by having a pipe in his possession. And this was the following month, and this resulted in seven days solitary confinement. He was at some point then removed to Hamilton, and there he was insubordinate in, quote, with others in endeavouring to occasion a riot, also breaking out of confinement at night. And this was December of his first year of arrival. This, obviously being a more serious offence, resulted in 18 months hard labour in chains. And it was further recommended in, in the conduct record that he be sent to a penitentiary. By September 1846, John was stationed at Saltwater River and was absent from work again without leave, so without permission, resulting in seven-day solitary confinement. Next, he was given hard labour for three months for having a pair of drawers, trousers, in his possession. And um, perhaps then 
shockingly to our ears in April of the following year John was given seven days solitary confinement for quote misconduct in having his face disfigured under suspicion of fighting so for being bruised um, he was given solitary confinement next the offence was not a status offence. So John was given six months imprisonment with hard labour in chains for larceny. So he stole to the value of under £5. In February the following year, he refused to work. This resulted in six months imprisonment with hard labour. And by 1849, he was again absent without permission. And this gave him six months imprisonment with hard labour. And then the last recorded offence was not until 30 years later. So while he was at Launceston in 1879 at this point, he was given one month imprisonment for neglecting to comply with an order to maintain his wife. So his conduct record, given his last offence, would suggest that he did marry. And I attempted to look for his marriage record and I think I found it. So the connection is uncertain, so I will say that. But a John Porter who was described as free, as a labourer, did marry in 1853, age 31. And this is the correct age and John Porter was free, so the convict that we've been um, discussing was free at the time that this marriage took place. So this is likely to have been him. And this John Porter married... Mary Kennedy, who was also was was currently under sentence as a prisoner, and she was a 26 year old spinster, and was transported across on the Duke of Cornwall. In the same year that um, John Porter was imprisoned for not supporting his wife, he entered the Brickfield Invalid Depot in June 1879. And he left in August when he was discharged by order of the administrator of charitable grants. So he evidently couldn't support his wife or himself at this point. Next, he entered the Newtown Pauper Establishment, so moving to another charitable institution in March 1890. And he left by the end of the month and went to service by approval. So he must have had work lined up. However, he then re-entered twice between 1893 and 95. And then he isn't seen in these records again until June 1897 when he entered Launceston Invalid Depot. So the third charitable institution. But he was then discharged at his own request the September after. He then re-entered at some point, though it's unclear when, and was released in May 1899. He then died at Launceston Invalid Depot of senality, as that's what's given in the death record, in May 1899. So he never left after that last re-entry. And interestingly, in that record, he is described as a compositor. And a compositor is, or was, a typesetter then, which is what was written in his transportation records way back before he entered the colonies. And this was a skilled trade. And as Maxwell Stewart, a historian who specialises in convict transportation, has, has argued, the employment listed on the conduct records is reasonably reliable. And what this record linkage of John's life certainly demonstrates is the jagged nature of his social mobility. He trained in a skilled trade before transportation, and he was possibly unemployed in his early 20s and committed a number of offences. Upon his marriage in the colonies in the 30s, he is described as a labourer. And then there is a gap in the records. 
So we cannot know what his employment was in the period of his freedom before he entered the charitable institution. But his death records suggest that he worked as a compositor during that period. And what we certainly do know is that even if he did work in that time in his skilled trade, he was unable to support himself and his wife in later old age. And as such, his life trajectory certainly pointed down at the end of his life. He was repeatedly discharged on agreement with the authorities from the pauper system, suggesting he had some means of supporting himself for short periods. And this is likely to have been seasonal work, yet he kept having to re-enter the charitable system. So I'm looking forward to uncovering more details of others like John Porter to see if there are any patterns and what conclusions if any, can be drawn. So when I develop this work, I'll be thinking about individuals like John Porter, but also about the group as a collective. So what does their data mean together? And I will be exploring how this group fed into narratives and counter-narratives surrounding social mobility and Australia as a working man's paradise. Thank you very much for listening to this episode on social mobility and pauper emancipists. For the next podcast, we'll be looking at the charitable system itself and how it changed over time. And again, obviously, we'll be incorporating a case study within that. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>